Well, it is truly great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'll tell you, it has been amazing uh, to preach uh, over the past uh, four months uh, to just a room empty and, and yet be able to, last service, be able to actually have people sitting here. Uh, I do realize that, uh, that wearing the mask is, is interesting. I was thinking about that as I was worshiping and and it really didn't hinder my worship. And then I thought of like uh, uh, Paul and Silas worshiping in chains. And I thought, well, I'm not doing that. And, and then in the Old Testament, you know, Daniel worshiping in the lion's den. I didn't have to do that. I just had to wear this mask. But as I worshiped, my big chin kept put, forcing it down. And so it's it like some different challenges in worship when you wear a mask. I, I was thinking, you know, Dave and their team, when they're up there, they're, they're actually leading us. And we're like masks. So they don't know like if we're really singing or not. So if you're not a singer, this is the perfect thing for you. Uh, no one can judge you, they don't even know. For me, I usually get the words wrong, and unless you heard me, you wouldn't know, because I'm not, they can't see my mouth, so they don't know if I'm mouthing it. But for me, I thought, well, this is great, I get to actually preach, and you get to have your mask off. And then I thought, but when I say something you may not like, you grimace. And if you had a mask, I would just figure the whole time you were smiling and sort of go from there, but uh, it is what it is. Um, you may notice if you're here on the, on the campus, the cross up here, um, there's some history behind that. Now, of course, the, the Real history is the fact that Jesus died for our sins, resurrected for our salvation. Uh, there's the big history behind the cross, if you didn't know. Uh, but the other history is that's the actual cross that was on the original spire uh, that was on the chapel. And so it's been uh, reused and is up there. It's a part of our church's history. And so uh, if you were around and remember seeing that thing, I, I wasn't. Um, you, that's the cross you were looking at. And if you don't, then at least you know uh, it's up there. And so it's sort of exciting to have the crew um, put that together for us. Well, we're in a series, second week, uh, seven-week series, we're calling it Thrive. And, and even this morning, um, a friend of mine, without even thinking, he knew what the series was, but I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm surviving. It's just sort of the natural thing to say these days, isn't it? And, and it was about a month into this whole stay-at-home order type thing where really I was challenged and the Lord said, I don't want you to survive, I want, I want you to thrive. Like, I want you to thrive. Like, the circumstances don't determine whether you thrive or not. Uh, I, want, I want you to, to thrive in me. And so we're looking at this pathway that God has laid out in his scripture, different things that, that he's called us to, to understand and live in, but allow us to thrive in the midst of all circumstances. Last week, we looked at community. And this week, we're going to look at this area of lordship. To start off, I want to look at a quote from the 17th century church leader, theologian, and academic John Owen. He wrote this. He says, we have no power from God unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. Let me read that again. Let's let that sort of marinate in our soul a little bit. We have no power from God unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. In other words, surrender to God with all of our mind, body, soul, our spirit is a prerequisite to receiving spiritual power. As long as we think we're in control, as long as we hold on to the control, we limit the power of God that's released in and through our lives. But when we understand we have no power except by him, then the very resources of heaven are poured out in abundance in our life to overflowing to where we're literally able to minister to others through the thriving that we experience in Christ. Now, I want to examine this this idea of lordship by first going to the scriptures and looking at two words that, that are used for the word Lord. In fact, there are many words in scripture used for this word Lord throughout the Old and New Testament, but two rise to the top. The first is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now you may recall Yahweh is, is the title, if you will. It's talking about the, 
self-existent, eternal God. It's a title that God gave to the ancient Hebrews when he sort of disclosed himself to him, when he said, this is who I am, I'm Yahweh. And it was such a sacred word to the ancient Hebrews that they wouldn't speak it. In fact, they wouldn't even write it. When they wrote it, they would write like this an abbreviated form of it because they thought it was such a, they understood it as such a sacred word. The only time it was ever spoken um, out of a Hebrew's mouth was on the, from the high priest on the day of atonement. That's how much they, they relish in this word, Lord. The Greek word that we find throughout the New Testament and also the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word kyrios or kyrios. And it's, it's a word that, that is, is interchangeable with the word Yahweh. And it's interesting because this is the Greek word that's translated for the word Yahweh that we find in one of the most important verses that comes out of the Old Testament in reference to Christ, Psalm 110.1. After Easter, this is Old Testament text came into its true understanding, Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The word Lord here is spoken of the messianic king, this, this promised one, and it's spoken as he's doing his earthly ministry, which was, it's, it's intended to elevate our understanding of who Jesus is. But he didn't just come from the line of David, which certainly fulfilled God's promise and prophecy, but also that he is Lord God. Jesus is Lord God. And lordship, when speaking of God, it is so much more than just a title it's wrapped up not just in who he is, but our relationship with him. Like the posture of our heart really shows how we understand Jesus as Lord. Let me illustrate this to you. This illustration would have made a lot more sense five months ago. Um, when I was taught by my dad at a young age that when you shake someone's hand, remember when we did that? You remember that? When we shake someone's hand that, that you're to, you're, to, you're to have a firm grip. Now, not some guys like want to break your hand, like not ridiculous firm grip, but you're a firm grip and look the guy in the eye. How many of you are taught that? When I took karate, I, I learned that when you bow to somebody, you, you bow respectfully, but you always look him in the eye. Do you know why we look the other person in the eye? Do you know where that tradition really comes from? Many people think it's respect. It's not. It, it's to keep an eye on the person. It literally is. It's when you're shaking your hand, how many of you are right-handed people? We're at a disadvantage when you're shaking someone's hand. Because you're a strong hand. If you're a left-hander, you're okay. You can go, whoa, get off me. But if you're a right-hander, so you keep your eye on them. In martial arts, you look at them because if they're going to throw a kick or something, now you want to see it coming. It's not just a sign of respect. It's keeping an eye on them. And dare I say, sometimes in our relationship with God, that's what we do. We respect him. Well, Lord, I'm keeping my eye on you. Now, I'm not talking about like we sang about and like we read in Scripture, keep your eye on Jesus because we want to follow him. We don't want to take our eyes off him. No, no, no. I mean, we're keeping our eye on him because like, Jesus, I trust you, but I'm watching. But the biblical understanding of what we're to do to Jesus is this. Laid out before him, head down, hands out. The stage isn't big enough for me to do this. But just, just laying down before him, Lord, I trust you. You know, there's not a more vulnerable place to be than laying out before someone like that. I mean, you're laid out. You're not watching. You're saying, Lord, I trust you so much that I don't have to keep my eye on you. Wherever you lead, that's where I'm going to go. Whatever you do, I'm going to trust you in that. 
You're the God of my circumstances. Let that settle for a minute. You're in control. Here's the point. It's our acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord that serves as the foundation of a life that thrives. The lordship of Christ in our lives is used by God to help us thrive. So I want to look at an interesting passage found in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. Follow along with me. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven him away, and you have not attended to him. Behold, I will attend to your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Now camp there for a minute. That's quite a warning. You didn't attend to my people, but don't worry, I will attend to you. That's what he's saying. Verse three. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to the fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will shed shepherds over them, and they who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be in dismay, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will gel securely. And this is the name by which he is to be called. Catch this. This is the name by which he is to be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23 speaks of Jesus Christ as the Lord, our righteousness. Now let's break this down a little bit. First, a warning is spoken to the shepherds who destroy, verses one and two. Let's look at it again. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Judah's leaders were disappointing. They were selfish. They didn't seek the Lord's wisdom in the way that they led, and God's people suffered because of it. In fact, the people were scattered because of it. They were sent into exile because of this poor leadership. But it wasn't just the poor leadership of the leaders, it was also the poor followership, if you will, of the people. Because the people looked at these leaders as the ones who were going to save them, who were, who were going to do all the right things all the time. And don't get me wrong, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here in just a moment. Because all leaders don't disappoint, at least not to this extent. We all disappoint each other sometimes, right? Getting awful quiet in here. Husbands and wives are getting scared. Be honest. We all disappoint each other once in a while. You make a decision. Some people are happy with it. Some people aren't. That's not what we're talking about here. All leaders don't disappoint to the level that, that the leaders of Judah and Israel disappointed their people by forsaking God and those type of things. And here's my point. It might surprise you. It's not about the leader. It's about the followership of the people. Because I want to just help us understand, if we're going to thrive, then we have to wrap our mind around the fact that we only have one Savior. If we're going to really thrive, we've got to wrap our mind around the fact that we really only have one Lord. Right, church? And so as much as we want to trust other leaders, ultimately, the only one who's 100% trustworthy is who? God, Jesus. He's the only one. 
And God's recognizing this. He's, in fact, he's taking the false shepherds spoken of here of, of, of Judah and Israel, and he's, he's contrasting them with Jesus, the true shepherd, the one who's always there for us, the one who's always going to lead the right way, the one who is our righteousness. Then look, look at verses 3 and 4. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall feel no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Let me point out something from the, from the outstart here with these verses. First of all is this. Who is, is taking the credit for driving them out of the promised land? Did you catch it? God. He says, where I have driven them. I just want you to sit back and take that in for a minute. Jeremiah is speaking the Lord's words to the people of God, and they are thinking that they're exiling, they're being forced to leave the promised land was, secure, was firmly in the hands of these pagan people who came in and destroyed their country and took them off. Who takes the credit for it? God. He says, I was working in the midst of this. I was still with you. When you were in exile, I was still with you. In fact, the, the beauty of the letters that we read and the prophecies that occur and the stories that we understand from the time of exile is that the people of God understood that you don't have to be in the promised land for the promises of God to be fulfilled in your life. Is that not a great promise? Come on, if that don't get you excited this morning, your wood is gone. Forget about it not being lit, it is gone. Think about it. How many times do we allow our circumstances to determine whether we believe God is on the scene and whether we can thrive? As I mentioned before I started preaching, Paul and Silas didn't need to be in a worship center to worship. They did it quite well in chains and jail. Daniel didn't need to be in a worship center to worship. He did it quite well in the lion's den. But may I say how great it is to be able to do it here in the worship center. For those of you online, I'm glad you can do it there, but it is really cool here. But God speaks of these things. Now, God does restore the people of Israel. He brings them back from exile. In fact, this began in 538 BC, and he did provide godly leadership. In fact, he promises them that the leadership he's going to provide over them will be better than it was before they even went into exile. Now, you may be asking the, the really crucial question, what does this have to, be, to do with me as a Christian in 2020? Well, here it is. We understand that probably no one in this room, maybe a few of you are, are biological descendants of Abraham, but we understand from the New Testament teaching that if you're in Christ, all of us are spiritual descendants of Abraham, right? So what is that exile we experience? Well, it's twofold. Number one, we all are in exile in the sense that we're not in paradise yet. We understand that, right? That's why many times when we're crying out for justice and such things, the reason we're not seeing those things perfectly is because we're not in a perfect place. You don't need me to tell you that, do you? But we were also in exile when we were far from God. Before we entered into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we received the fulfillment of this promise, this blessing, when we said yes to Jesus. In fact, if you're here this morning and listen, or watching online or or whatever, if you're listening to this message, and maybe you're saying, man, I haven't said yes to Jesus yet. Maybe you feel far from him. Let me tell you, you are only one prayer away. You're only one yes to Jesus away 
from the fulfillment of this promise. That I will be with you, that I'm going to that I'm going to do a work in the midst of your life that allow you not just to survive, but to thrive. Then look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he is to be called. What is it? The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. We read of the king to come. It's, it's a metaphor of sorts of this, of this shoot bursting forth from the Davidic tree and, and, and it's, it's cut off, but yet it's not dead. And the king will reign and prosper and he's gonna be a good king. He's gonna rule what? With wisdom and, and grace and mercy and, and justice. And when the king comes, all of God's people will be saved and live securely in him. And who's the king? The Lord is our righteousness. It's a play on words, because when Jeremiah was speaking this prophecy, Zedekiah was king, and, and Zedekiah literally means, the Lord is my righteousness. So their king wasn't their righteousness. The king's name simply stated, no, 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 the Lord is our righteousness. <laughs> He's my righteousness. But the name of the King of Kings, the Lord to come, is the Lord is our righteousness. In fact, the one who has come, Jesus Christ. See, we can't thrive and we can't survive without Jesus as Lord and receiving him as our righteousness. When we speak of Jesus' righteousness, we're not just talking about his perfect state of being. We're talking about the fact that, that he's 100% right before the Father and that through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and being resurrected for our salvation, that his righteousness becomes ours. There's a word for that. It's called imputed. Now, what does that word mean? Well, it's a form of the word imputation, which means designated, an action reckoned or given to a person. In other words, the righteousness of Jesus is given to us when we believe in order to make us right with God. Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. Let that sink in for a minute. See, you may be sitting here and saying, Craig, you didn't hear our conversation on the way to church this morning. It wasn't a righteous conversation. You don't know the way I treated so-and-so the other day. That wasn't a righteous act. And although those things are true, if you're in Christ, his righteousness is your righteousness. You say, Craig, I don't, I'm not righteous. If you're in Jesus, you're wrong. You are. You say, you can't tell me that. I just did. If you're in Jesus, you are righteous. It doesn't matter what you tell yourself. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. God himself has promised that if you're in Christ, you are righteous in him because of his righteousness. Now, does that mean we go on and act any way we want? Of course not. We want to live up to who we are in him. Right, church? That's what sanctification is all about, becoming like Jesus, right? You are righteous. Now, why don't you go and by the power of the Spirit, become more righteous in the way you act and talk? Now, what sanctification is? Come on, you're getting quiet this morning. When I was preaching and it was all online, I just, you all were screaming back. That's what I was picturing, so. I'm still going to act like that. Jesus is our righteousness. The work of Jesus and his people is, is not just to clean us of the stain of sin. It, it's the perfect 
obedience and righteousness of Jesus becoming ours. Think about it this way. Jesus as our righteousness does not merely mean that he reflects the righteousness of God or that he empowers us to reflect the righteousness of God, but that we, he imparts to his people his very righteousness. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what we're going through, no matter what's thrown at us, no matter how we're, his righteousness is ours. I believe this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he was speaking about Christ, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made Jesus who knew no sin to know sin. When he hung on the cross, he bore our sin. He bore it all on the cross. So that what? We might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And we're able to thrive. I love these words from Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer. It's written sort of dated. I mean, it was written in the 1500s. So it's written a little dated. It was originally written in German, which I couldn't read. I only took two weeks of German. I took two weeks and I dropped it. I know Gutenmorgen. I think that's an actual word. And stool and pencil are the same. But outside that, I don't know German. But it's translated in English, but it's still written in sort of an old language, but it's still really cool. Catch what he says. He writes this. He says, you, sir, Satan. I just got to stop there. He's like talking to Satan. Now, I don't know if that's wise or not, but I think it's sort of pretty cool. I mean, he's like, he's like I don't know what's going on in his life. He's like, I just got a trick. I just got, my guy brings Satan some wisdom. That's what he's doing. He says, you, sir, Satan, your menaces and trouble and terrors trouble me not. What's he saying? Satan, you're nothing. You don't bother me. That's pretty cool. For why? So he wants Satan to know why. There is one whose name is called the Lord our righteousness, whom I believe. Oh, as great as he is in me, he's in the world. He it is that have abrogated the law, condemned sin, abolished death, destroyed hell, and I love this line, and is a Satan to thee, old Satan. Satan means adversary. So he's saying, Satan, I don't fear you, because greater is me, is, is me is in the world. Like, he's conquered you already. Like, you're walking around, but you're a dead man walking. Like, you're done. And he says, you may think you're my adversary, but that's okay. I'm God's, and he's your adversary, and he's already kicked your butt. That's, that's a deep theological statement there. That's from Luther. I mean, what, what a powerful statement. What you may not know about Luther is he battled depression his entire life. He found these dark places he would find himself going to from time to time. You do realize that you can be a follower of Jesus and still battle depression. His wife had an interesting way of, of helping him out of these times. And one day she came down and Luther was in a particularly dark place. And she said, I don't know. I, I, you never told me that God had died. And he said, woman, what do you speak that God has died? And she said to him, well, the look on your face is he's dead. And it was helped to snap him out of it. By the way, I don't think that's a great counseling method. Uh, it was their marriage thing, probably not ours. But I picture, can you picture Luther? He comes out of one of these dark moments and he goes, oh, no, no, he got me again. Can't you picture? And he says, you, sir, Satan, your menaces and, tr and terrors trouble me not. For why? 
There is one whose name is called the Lord, our righteousness, on whom I believe. He it is who have abrogated the law, condemned sin, abolished death, destroyed hell, and is a Satan to thee, O Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, self. Ever been there? Get thee behind me, world. For greater is he who is in me who is in the world. For he is my righteousness. He covers me. Now look back at the quote from John Elwin. We have no power from God unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own. God, I'm not in control. You are. I don't have the power but that which you have given me. But you've given me the ability to overcome fear. You've given me the ability to overcome any obstacle in my way. Because you're my righteousness. The lordship of Christ in our lives is used by God to help us thrive. What is the posture of your heart this morning? Is it to distance yourself from God? I've been there. Is it to shake his hand respectfully but say, I got an eye on you? Or perhaps you say, Lord, by your strength, would you help me lay out and trust you? Trust you with my current circumstance. Trust you with my future. Trust you in all the highs and lows. That you are my Lord, that you are my God. You are my righteousness. And as we trust in him, no matter what we go through, we can thrive, church. You don't have to just try to survive. You can thrive in the power of Christ. If you're distanced from him, say yes. Be drawn close. He's only a prayer away. You may think you're far from God, but God is very close to you. So let's pray. Let's pray and let's ask that God would help us have that posture that allows us to receive all that he wants for us, all that he has for us, to embrace what he's already done for us, in Christ our righteousness. Lord Jesus, thank you so much just for your love, for the fact that we don't have to gather in a worship center to worship you, and yet I'm so thankful that for many of us in this room, we've been able to do that this morning. Thank you that people have been able to watch through live stream and participate that way, and will be participating throughout the week online, but, but God, thank you for this time of gathering. And Lord, I pray that, that no matter how we're receiving this service, that, Lord, the work of your spirit would be done in fullness, that we would open our hearts and minds up to you. That, God, we would be able to proclaim that we understand that we have no power of our own, that the real power we have comes from you. And it comes from the fact that Jesus is our righteousness, that, that what he did on the cross matters. It changed us. It changed our destiny. But we don't have to settle for surviving when you want us to thrive in you. I pray that a person, perhaps, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior would do so this morning, that, that the person who would be honest and say, you know what, I have been keeping my eye on Jesus. Not the way that the scripture tells me to, keep my eyes on Jesus so I can follow him and, and not stray. But, but I've been but like second guessing. Like, you know, <laughs> Jesus, I'm just, I'm watching you. And Lord, I pray that you would take us to a posture of just surrender, laid out before you. Saying, I'm in your hands. 
but I don't look for others to be my Savior or for others to be my Lord. Because you're the only one that doesn't discipline. So God, may your freedom reign in this room. May your freedom reign in the small spaces that are participating in this service online. And as we scatter into our community, even in this time of social distancing, may we be reminded that the God who has such creativity that he spoke the world into existence can certainly infuse us with his creativity enough to be his church, to send his love, to share his message, even behind masks, even six feet apart. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for your profound love and work you're doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen.